Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Great weekend. Busy Monday coming up. Let's dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Manuel. Manuel had a question uh, in a, regarding an observation of watching people trying to lock weights out overhead and seeing the limitation in the, in the ability to extend the elbow to straighten the arm. And so we talked through the reasoning as to why this may be. And then this sort of expanded into, okay, what about the shoulder orientation? What about elbow orientation? What about hand orientation? And then what sequence of events do we need to execute to recover relative motions under these circumstances. So this unpacks a lot of information in a very short period of time. So it's gonna be useful for a lot of people that are having questions about these elbow orientations and then how to address them. So thank you, Manuel, great question. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in the email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday and I'll see you tomorrow. I can understand like the, the, the compensation in the forearm. Yeah. Do you ever, whenever you have that, that, that medial tricep, um, really um, IRing that distal humerus, would, do you see do you see the proximal humerus twist kind of in the way you would see like a, a varus orientation, the cowboy orientation in like the humerus? Okay, so so think about this, Manuel, especially as the loads increase, mm. the amount of force I apply has to increase, which means I'm gonna squeeze you more front to back. I'm gonna stick you more in a middle representation, which means I'm gonna be taking away your ER. So I have to orient harder into ER, which means I have to twist harder into IR. Same, same process as we were just talking about in lower extremity. Yeah, because so what I'll see is, you know, I do see a lot of hyperextension overhead in what I do. But, Not shocked by that. But Not shocked by that. Right. Um, yeah. But in really compressed individuals, what I'll see is it, it, it looks like they can't even bend their, or they can't even straighten their arm, you know? So like they'll go overhead and it looks like they're like this. Okay. And so what I'm so, wondering is, is that kind of like what we're talking about with that cowboy representation where they had that, that hyperextension and then they had so much uh, twist going on that they had to twist at the proximal humerus to then get that kind of orientation. Where okay. It looks like they're not bent, they're not straightening their arm, but they're, they're not straightening their arm because they can't. But there is, you know, when you ask them to straighten their arm, they're like, this is as far as it goes. Right. Okay. So why? So why does it stop well they don't have enough er for the ir but yeah so but so they so they ran out of spit they literally so they have they have hit the threshold where they can no longer compensate into er and produce an ir on top of it so the motion literally stops and it's like they'll be accused of being weak right? Oh, you're not strong enough to lock it out. It's like, well, okay, you're not strong enough to twist the bones harder to, to finish the lockout under these circumstances. Like that's literally like they are at the threshold of their current state or anatomy, or it's literally the end. Mm -hmm. They have actually hit the limit of their system's capabilities to create an orientation uh, of ER and superimpose the IR on it. Right. right. So 
So, so I was wondering if that kind of orientation is, is like what we see at the leg or yes, know, we same see that, thing. That same, representation. same thing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. That's why you can't, so you can't lock out like, and it doesn't matter what exercise we're talking about where, where we would see like the, the elbow having to go from a bent position to a straight position. Doesn't matter. Like if you can't finish a bench press, it stops because you are out of room. Mm -hmm. Like you're squeezing as hard as you possibly can. You can't squeeze yourself anymore. There's no more orientation ER to, to create a space to move into. There's no more IR that I can superimpose. It stops. And then uh, in, in terms of, of strategy, how, how do we untwist humorous in that, in that way? <laughs> well, you got to get an axial skeleton that can, that can recapture relative motions. I got to restore relative motion at the shoulder. I got to identify the hand position so I know what position the elbow's in so I know which way to twist it, mm. right? Not as clean and simple as, oh, you just do this exercise. Right. Right. You have to understand what you're trying to recreate. Right. So the, 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 the simple answer is I got to get my AP. Right. So I have relative motions available at the shoulder, but then I got to understand where I came from. So if I'm oriented into ER, if I have a proximal bony orientation into ER, I have to IR that first. Otherwise, I don't have access to any elbow position or hand position. Mm -hmm. right? You can go after elbows and hands right away with the understanding that I got a shoulder that's probably going to kick them right back out into that, that same orientation. If I'm trying to control a symptom, so if somebody comes in with elbow pain and um, um, we got to get, like they can't do anything because the elbow is so uncomfortable, we might do something at the elbow that would alleviate a symptom that would allow us to do another activity proximal to distal first. Mm -hmm. So from a strategy standpoint, right? But yeah, because I, I feel like of, it's a matter of selecting the activities that would reduce the concentric orientation that got you into that position in the first place. Right. I feel like, uh, so I, I understand that. I feel like when I, you know, like like half kneeling, I think is, is pretty effective at address, you know, addressing the twists at the- Sometimes, you know, yeah. Hip, and then we can go from there. Uh -huh. I feel like when I'm working overhead, I, I I don't have I don't have a position uh, an equivalent position that I can think of. Like, uh, there is. I can think about. I can think. I can do stuff for AP expansion. But I feel like I'm doing it in pieces rather than like. You are. You are. In many cases, you are. It's like I, you, you, I guess what I'm looking for is what what would you know? I'm you want a big for, bang or something like, yeah, like for everything all at once. I'm looking for a home run. I want to be super. <laughs> yeah. You you want to walk in and go. I have one exercise that you need to do and we'll be ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. So half um, elbow movement or whatever. So, okay. But so, so think, think about, think about where, think about what they're trying to do. So they're, so they're, they're going to end up trying to produce force in an ER position. So you're going to be moving most of these people into like, a, like you might have to go early for like for your narrows, you're going to go early first, but, but ultimately you're trying to bring them back into a middle representation where they're going to produce more force. And then you're trying to give them the relative motion to get into the most advantageous position to produce force, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to be moving people towards middle representations um, as you as you start to align them into an internally rotated um, representation from proximal to distal. Mm -hmm. So this is side stuff, 
right? Like if you were if if, if you were uh, um, in the the lower extremity, like you you mentioned, like a split stance or a, or a half kneeling representation, because that's an IR representation, right? Right. So, so we like an think, oblique sit do the same thing. Yeah. So so we we do oblique sit variations a lot of the times because those are middle representations, and then I can work proximal to distal on those. And then depending on whether I'm high or low, then I can, you know, influence which segment I'm emphasizing, right? Mm -hmm. So that that should get your brain started in the right direction. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah. Cool. Great. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a little quick housekeeping uh, item or two. Uh, great call yesterday on IFAST University, great Q&A. Um, for those of you that are on IFASTU, uh, IFASTUniversity.com, um, the call is posted um, for you to view. If you're not on IFASTUniversity.com yet, please go there, get yourself signed up and participate in, in those activities um, with such a great group of coaches, trainers, and therapists. Okay, uh, second item. A lot of questions about the, the next intensive. Um, we'll be in the summertime. It's gonna be in July probably at some point in time. Um, haven't set the dates yet, but, but um, start looking at your July schedule. If you would like to participate in that, applications um, will be required as usual for the intensive. It is not for everyone, only eight people at a time. So please keep that in mind. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. Um, this is an extension of one of the, the videos that we posted not too long ago, probably last week, where we were talking about the seven components of force, and then we got into whether the atmosphere is, is predictable or unpredictable, and how does that influence our ability to produce forces. So we talked about yielding and overcoming, and how is that applied in these unpredictable atmospheres. This is one of the reasons why we talk about things like specificity, and why it's so important for athletes to actually play their sport because it is the most specific way that they're going to demonstrate these capabilities. And so what can we do in the gym? How do we make it a little less predictable? Because um, most of the stuff that we do in the gym is, is in a predictable environment and how can we start to influence force production in that manner? So, so this is a really good discussion. We had, um, I believe Alec and Andrew and Ian all participating in this one. So thank you guys um, for your, your contributions. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Put, please include your question in the email. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience as usual. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow. That's why those things are useful. If I compress the time, all of my rate changes, right? and all of my force output changes. So again, it becomes very useful as a, as a training uh, element where I don't have to, I don't have to make the, everything so predictable like I would in the gym, like if I was training box jumps or agility exercises or things like that. Cool. Yeah. Cool. We should probably throw predictability in there, huh? What do you think? Like as an eighth yeah. component of force? Yeah. yeah. I think well, so. I don't know. I'm, I think uh, we're going to do that as of today, as of today. There you go. It's the, uh, the uh, Carsten Duval principle. <laughs>
Yeah, sure. But, yeah. but the, would it actually influence connective tissue behavior? Like in anticipation yes. of okay, a stimuli, so, right. I would pre, what? I would actually pre-store energy. So, oh yeah, oh absolutely. Okay. So, so here you go. Uh, and and there's there's plenty of evidence of this. So if you were doing a box jump, okay, yeah. let's say I, I got you on a 36 inch box and you're gonna jump and you're gonna stick the landing, okay? Yeah. Before you hit the ground, the concentric orientation in the musculature that's going to be absorbing the the jump, actually it's the connective tissue that absorbs the jump, but the connective tissue or the, the connective tissues have to be tuned before you hit the ground. Oh yeah. And there's the, an the, anticipatory the... Uh, motor output yeah, because of course I'm going to try to get eccentric on top of being yeah, eccentric. Dude, okay, dude, brilliant! I, I'm stealing this. It's going to go. It's number eight. There you go. Predictability. I love it. And you were all here to see it. Way to go, Alec. Yes. Thank you. Well, thanks to you. Thanks for being on the call. Good question. Nope. Sorry. No more follow-ups allowed. No, go ahead. <laughs> I how okay. So predictability would be something like. It would be like, has it happened before? And like, like, or how many times has it happened before in that particular representation? Or no. Um, am I be more to, like, how aware am I of what's coming next? Correct. Like, okay. Yeah. It, it, but again, it would be, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It would be based on experience. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't have to be in the exact same environment to be able to apply experience. I just need to, to formulate a prediction. So um, you have an analogy of certain things in your head, right? So it's a story like, like this is what a split squat is supposed to look like kind of a thing, right? right. And then you, you, you make a comparison. And so um, in, in a dynamic situation where things are unpredictable, you're still making predictions, right? Um, you know, that the ground is going to be firm underneath my feet. Um, if I, <clears throat> uh, you know who Wayne Gretzky was? Yeah. Okay. Very small human being for a hockey player. He was like 5'11", 175. Not fast. Yet, the greatest scorer of all time. Okay what he was really, really good at was predicting, right? So his prediction capabilities were great. So, and he actually said this in an interview, he said, he said, I never went after the puck. I always went to the area where I thought the puck was going to be, right? And so again, very aware, and he's, he's in a very specific environment many, many times. And so his, his predictability was probably a little bit higher than the average Joe, but generally speaking, it's like, you're still making predictions. And then the more experience you get in an environment, the better your predictions gets, your probabilities go up right, in your favor. So that's probably what so, so the anticipatory behaviors should improve. That's really good, Alec. Man, I love that. I love that. So it's a cupcake. I didn't, why didn't I think of that? It's like, I've been doing this for a long time. It's like, damn. But I, this is why we do those calls. So I learned something. So Great variability point. and predictability aren't, it's not like one side of a spectrum. Like, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like it's variability. Very so variability would be associated with the, the application and the environment itself, right? So if I tell you, so here you go, uh, Andrew. If I tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jab you in the face three times with my left hand and then follow it with a right. 
I just told you what's going to happen. Your, your predictability is very, very high, right? And then if I said, we're just going to spar, right? Now I've just reduced the predictability that you don't know what's going to happen. Right. But, but it's still variable, right? Right. So both of them are variable. One just has a higher degree of predictability. Okay. Yeah, I guess, okay, I'm just getting tangled up a little bit because it seems like it, it's it's more of like an observer effect, but but maybe, maybe but no, no, actually, no, it's, it means, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I guess that variability would, would, would be a representation of how widely, widely spread or not are all the difference. Well, variability could be predictable production. or unpredictable based on, based on your prior knowledge. Yeah, but meaning like or, everything could be very alike or very different. And yeah. predictability is like your, your the relationship you have with that that yeah. uh, that sample of whether how aware you are or not of how spread yeah. that is. So that if you were told you would be punched on the right three times and one on the left, that is very like a low variability that would have a high predictability. But if Bill was to break the script and then go right, right, left, left, then you would have like that would influence all other components because you would need to react really quickly because you were you had prepared a reaction for a stimuli that does not happen i don't know if that was clear clear but no but, but but this so this is a this is a big deal in regards to when you're training athletes and this is why they have to play their sport to prepare for their sport right is because that is a very specific environment so that so the contextual elements, the affordances that are in the environment that that allow us to make determinations and, and make predictions, right, are there specifically. That's why nothing in the gym is as specific as the sport in and of itself, right? Because everything that I do in the gym has a higher degree of predictability under most circumstances. Right. Right. Could you could you say high predictability gives you more chance of creating the overcoming so as more more times you played your sport you can predict better and you can create those overcoming than just because i, I don't think it's going to be biased towards one element or the other i would just say that that you are you would you your tuning capabilities would be all right all right be because i try to see it yield on one side and overcome on the right. other it's like it's like both of always remember that 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 when, when we talk about these gradient related behaviors like yield to overcome er to ir right up versus down it's like they're both there yeah again yeah. It's, it, it, again but again if we move into a high 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 degree of predictability that that trains the system to to have a yield to have an overcome available the application of that of that then becomes contextual just be able to change it from one to the other and back. Yeah. 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 Right. And then it's like, how fast can I do that? And yeah. then, so then we can use the, we can use the contextual activity. So in, like in Cameron's case, it's going to be playing video games. You know, in your case, it's, it's playing soccer, right. Or football. Right. Um, and, and again, that's, that's why they have to play their sport because again, they have, they have to learn how to manage the environment. So they start to recognize cues that help them make it more predictable. And this is probably why, you know, you always see like the one superstar in a sport. What's, what's the, what's the dude's, is, is it Messi? 
soccer player, yeah. Messi. He's good, right? That's what people, I don't know who he is. People tell me about him all the time. Um, so they say he's really, really good. So why is he better than everybody else? Does he kick the ball harder and faster than everybody else? Or is he just better at managing the probabilities of what, of what the outcomes will be? And then that's why he's better. It's like, it, he, he might not be the fastest guy in, in, on the team. He might be, I don't know. Um, he might just be the better predictor of the, of the you know, entire- no, just, just like you said, he doesn't even look fast, but he, he's able to predict and that's what, right. yeah, he's ahead of, yeah. Yeah, All right. yeah. All right. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, another busy day coming up, um, but a quick reminder, uh, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., coffee and coaches conference call as usual. Great Q&A, great people on these calls. Um, you obviously watch a lot of these segments. Um, please grab a cup of coffee. Join us 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time um, for the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Digging into today's Q&A, uh, this is with Ivan. Um, Ivan's question pertained uh, to a little bit of knee orientation, but what we were actually talking about here is a lot of the influences of physical structure. And so structure represents the constraints. So we're always talking about how we can behave within these constraints. That's why I created the the two archetypes, the wide and the narrow ISA archetypes, because it gives us a representation of what the possibilities are, it gives us starting conditions. So we know where point A is when we see a representation of point B, and this allows us to intervene effectively and arrive at useful solutions um, when we have movement problems. So thank you, Ivan, for bringing this up. It's a great discussion um, that I think is gonna be valuable for a lot of people. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in your email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience as usual. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Uh, so uh, for the past couple of weeks I, I, I'm thinking about the, the limp twists and I was thinking about the archetypes and I was just thinking like the sequence would the sequencing of the untwisting of the bones be different for the different archetypes so just for context sake let's say you had like a guy with various knees I, I would think that someone who was who was narrow who's more biased into that ER and, and just because of his structure, it would be easier for him to get to, to various knees, whereas somebody who was a wide would maybe more often present with various uh, knees instead of valgus, uh, sorry, the other way around, valgus knees instead of various. Because if, if a wide had like various knees, right, and he had that proximal ER superimposed, um, it would be easier to get him back into that IR presentation, right? Um, I don't. I, easy is always like a tough word for me because the minute you say that, oh, it's easier to do this, then you get the guy that walks in that's not. Um, yeah. You want to start. You want to. You want to think about the position of the center of gravity, forward or back, and then what direction 
is the is the center of gravity going up or down? Okay. Okay. So if the center of gravity is down and forward, down and forward. So down is IR, right? Yep. That means I got to push into the ground a lot harder. And then the question mark is, is like, okay, how am I going to do that? And so now you have to, you can't just look at the archetype. You have to look at the, the relative difference in the size of the thorax to the pelvis, because you have to look at the starting conditions of where your proximal connection of the limb is. So let's just say you got a really wide pelvis. Okay. Really big round pelvis. And you got a tiny little thorax. Mm -hmm. And I got to, and I, my center of gravity goes down and forward. So think about how wide the, the hip structure would be. And then my center of gravity has to move down and in and forward. I got to have a big turn inward. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which means okay. I'm going to see a different kind of a knee structure than what you were just talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I am trying to um, avoid that position and I have a, a, a different uh, axial structure, my strategy would have to change where I might have to use a varus where I'm going to push my center of gravity more forward and not down as far. And then that would keep me up which means I'm going to ER more from proximal to distal. So you would get like your so-called varus representation, yeah. right? So, so both could have the same archetype, but because the configuration of the axial skeleton is different, my strategy has to change because one has more downforce than the other. Do you see the differences what? too? Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah. what do you usually go by when you see someone? How would you know like someone's pelvis is bigger than the thorax? Like, I mean, for some people, it's obvious. Because it's there, like they're standing in front of me and I go, that's a really small rib cage. That's a really big pelvis. Okay, so it's just do, experience and over do, do they use the Do they use orange cones where you live to mark the, like working in the streets and stuff? Yeah, I think that's like is it standard? Is it like standard <laughs> yeah, in the whole world? Like everybody uses everybody uses the orange cones. So you get yeah. somebody that's shaped like like one of those orange cones. Okay, right? yeah, that's, you can see the okay. differential. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's really close, and so that those are people would be would have a different strategy. Some people are the other way, right? Like some people look like a like a V. Yeah, like a funnel. Yeah. So, so they have a different they have a different strategy than than the uh, pylons do, right? Yeah. Okay. So okay, those, those influence those influence the the forces that or or the strategy that you use to manage the forces. Some yeah. some some physical structures make those make it very easy to manage those forces. Some structures make it incredibly difficult to manage those forces. So that's why you see the different strategies. So that, that's all, go ahead. That's why you use some positions to to uh, counter that structure, like like a inverse position, for an example. Yes, sir. Because 
you know, <clears throat> they have difficulty managing gravity upright and you need to make a physical change that they can't make in that upright position, I have to reorient the direction of gravity. Well, I can't change gravity per se. So I have to yeah. change their position relative to gravity. Now they might have a mechanical advantage that will help them capture relative motions that they can't capture in an upright position. Then hopefully you train them progressively where they can actually learn to manage those forces a little bit more effectively, knowing full well that you're not gonna change their physical structure sufficiently. They have to learn how to, they have to understand how they do things. Good morning, happy Thursday. I have NeuroCopy in hand and it is perfect. All right, so I've got a, a question which could be a very quick uh, quick answer, so we'll, we'll see. Um, I was sort of reviewing some of the older videos that you'd shot in respect to muscle orientation and some of the terminology surrounded surrounding muscle orientation and connective tissue behavior. Gotcha. And I just wanted to clarify in more recent times, I haven't heard much in the line of using uh, overcoming and yielding to describe any behaviors associated with muscle activity. And I was just wondering whether that, have you changed that at any point in, in recent times or it just hasn't come up in discussion? Because in recent times, all I've heard it is uh, as a description of connective tissue uh, behavior. Well, because that, because that's all the overcoming and yielding only describes connective tissue behavior it has nothing to do with the muscles themselves. Okay. So that's, okay. Okay. Let, let so me, that, let me, let me, let me clarify. Right. <clears throat> muscle, when I say muscle orientation, so that's concentric versus eccentric orientation. Okay. It describes a position of the muscle. Yes. Okay. The connective tissue behaviors either yield, they are, they are expanding to absorb or distribute energy, yes. or they are overcoming, which means that they are compressing where they are releasing energy. Right. Okay. So, so again, that, that, that's one of the challenges is like, you, you have to separate the two because they don't do the same thing. And a lot of people, uh, they, they make a, a, an error is that they associate those, those connective tissue descriptors with muscle behavior. And that is not the case because um, they have to be separate. Connective tissues don't change muscle position. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, the, one of the uh, key elements in understanding this is like they are they are managing the potential and kinetic energy that we use to move through space. Yeah, that's what that's what it, I thought, but I just yeah. wasn't sure. I think I misunderstood one of the previous one of the yeah. older videos. Um, if you uh, if you if you see some people with with certain neurologic disorders where they where they lack the control of the muscle behavior. And so they would be ataxic. You'll see a lot of shaky motions because there's so much muscle tension that connective tissues don't behave as they normally would. So, so can, when we see these graceful flowing type activities, you know, like dance or just an athletic performance of any kind, the reason that those movements are so smooth is because the connective tissues are in this constant state 
of, of yielding and overcoming to, to make sure that the energy is distributed in such a way that allows that motion to appear as such. If the muscles try to do that, they don't have the level of coordination to, to smooth out the, the, the movements, right? It would be a miserable existence if we relied on, on muscle behavior alone to produce movement. It would be horrible. <coughs> It would get very hard to run and jump. Well, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like a really good example that the, the, the first thing that popped into my head was the movie Awakenings when Robert De Niro was was going through the the uh, the loss of control of his body. And, and you see all these uncontrolled sort of ataxic kind of a movement kind of a thing. It's like it would be worse than that. <laughs> because you just wouldn't you wouldn't be able like um like consider all the motor units in a muscle in and of itself and then having them trying to fire in this perfect sequence to create this perfect movement it's just not possible the connective tissues are 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 behaving in an amazing fashion to allow us to produce what looks like a coordinated movement and so that leads me to a, a kind of a follow-up question. I expected the answer you gave is, is what I expected. So that's great. Um, in respect to one of those videos, I think I was looking at, you were talking about uh, how a muscle can be lengthened at one end and sort of concentrically orient, oriented at, 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 an, sure. opposing, at yeah. an opposing end. Yes. I'm just trying to get my head around. Does that mean that, like, how is that... If you've got a muscle innovated, does it, is that does that sort of determine however many innovation points are in a particular muscle? Does that determine how it might behave as far as whether it's sort of eccentrically oriented at one end or concentrically oriented, if you if you want to call it that way, I, albeit yeah, it's not yeah. So how does that work? Certainly an influence. Certainly an influence. But right. but you know we we tend to pull muscles out of context. Right, you got to understand that everything is moving together, and so if, if I start to move one end of a muscle away in in a, in a direction because other bony change, like bony position change, is taking place, and then so so I can hold this one, this end of a muscle still, and move this one away, and then bring this one over. Okay, right? it's almost like like an inchworm. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll picture it. Okay. Um, so a, a muscle can behave that way. It's like, like, like just because, you know, and I'm, again, we're, we're simplifying the concept here. Just say that you have a muscle that's, that has one attachment at each end. If I fix this attachment, this moves relative to the other attachment. Okay. If I fix this one, it moves this way. And if I can go like that, right. Or I can go like that, or I can bring them both together. Right. And so, <clears throat> you have to, you you the traditional again the traditional viewpoints based on dead guy anatomy that's where origins and insertions came from mm. okay origins and insertions is an inaccurate representation of muscle behavior good morning happy friday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect all right, 
Uh, for those of you on the two-week sprint, this is the recovery weekend. This is where you do your review, reflection, you look at your schedule, you make your changes, and you make your updates as needed. So you're constantly refining your process. Um, digging into today's Q&A, this is with Chase. Chase had a really good question in regards to pelvic orientation, um, complaints about anterior hip pain. So, so the uh, category of diagnoses that you would be talking about here would be hip impingements. And we talked about strategies, how to move people away from these anterior uh, hip compressive strategies. So a very useful uh, Q&A for a lot of people that are dealing with a lot of issues, especially when you're not sure based on archetype as to how to move people out of these positions. What we have to be able to do is capture a position of relative motions first. And so that's one of those most important things when we talk about moving people around, shifting center of gravity and such. So Chase, thank you so much for this question. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and also include your question in the email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience as usual. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. Uh, the podcast will be up on Sunday, and I will see you next week. So I had a question uh, in the context of someone in a in-game, right anterior, oblique orientation. Yep. Um, and they've got impingement or pain on that right hip. Okay, where? Um, like groin area. So it's in the front? Yes, sir. Gotcha. And my assumption is I need to start trying to pull them back on the right because they're pushed forward. Okay, what would be what would be your indicator that that, that would be the, the first course of action? Um, I guess my thought is I need to create space around that hip because what measurement? What measurement? internal internal hip rotation is there lost? You go. There yeah. you go. Okay, and what does that what does that tell you? So when you lose the internal rotation, what does that tell? You? It means there's 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 no expansion available in the hip. In regards to their center of gravity, that means that, that means that they are they are pushed forward on that right side. Okay. So first course of action. And is that because they're compressed in the posterior? Okay. That's that's what's pushing them forward. Yeah. And so, so, you, um, so, so think of that. Think of think of sequence of events. Okay. They move on the oblique. They lose ER. That's how you know, right? That's how you know yep. they, they would yep. lose they, they would lose ER on the right side, and then when they start to lose the IR, that means that the center of gravity is now moving forward, right? Because okay. if the center of gravity is moving forward, that means they have to get compressed on the front side. Compression on the front side is where you lose the IR. Okay, gotcha. It's, an, it's just indication of how far forward the center of gravity is, and that that determines how much harder they have to push back on themselves, because nobody wants to tip over their toes and fall on their face. Right. Right. Yeah. So I guess my question is to create posterior expansion, is that associated? Okay. <laughs> when you say posterior expansion, clarify your thought. Posterior uh, me, can I rephrase my thought? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, it's not that it's incorrect. I, it's just, it's like if we just broadly say posterior expansion, because we talk about the fact that everybody needs to expand anterior posterior all the time, you know? Right. But if, if you go, 
uh, I need posterior expansion behind the right ear. Is, is that helpful? Uh, yeah. yeah, actually it is under the circumstances. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, my point is, is like you, you want to clarify this because think about this for a second, boss. Look at the starting conditions of a wide ISA versus a narrow ISA pelvis. They're not the same. So when we say posterior expansion on a narrow, are we talking about the same expansion strategy on a narrow as we are on a wide? Well, no, because the starting conditions were different. So when you say, I need posterior expansion, where do you want to get it? Well, my thought is, if I need to pull them back on the right, mm -hmm. um, I guess my question was, is that associated with, trying to choose my words carefully, is that associated with internal rotation in that hip? And if I need that, but it causes pain every time I internally rotate. Then you need a different strategy because what, okay. because what you're doing is you're getting an orientation. Okay. It's the, it's the orientation that's creating the, the problem. So that's probably where I need to use manual skills. Maybe. I mean, there's Maybe, a lot of yeah. ways. If you, like, I don't care how you right. approach it as long as you understand the representation that you're dealing with, right? So that's the right thought process, though, is I yeah, need but, rotation some way, somehow. So, so th yeah, but, but think about this. So um, so where, if you think about, again, take a, take a wide ISA pelvis, an exhaled representation of the pelvis, so like just nutated sacrum, right? Mm -hmm. Where you would have a, a, a posterior outlet that would be eccentrically oriented. Okay. As okay. the center of gravity moves forward, I lose that eccentric orientation. Okay. I increase my anterior orientation because I still have to have the, I still have to have the IR downforce into the ground, right? Even though the hip joint itself doesn't show IR, I have to create an IR force, right? I have to push down into the ground. That's what you're dealing with. So their IR force is so significant in regards to their compensatory strategy. They have now taken away all the space on the front side of the hip. And now everything is, is pressing on, on that area, right? So mm -hmm. it's compressed anteriorly. Okay. If I try to drive, if I try to um, anteriorly orient and move you back into that, that previous space, it hurts. Okay, because I have just continued to compress the same space. Is that where you'd want to create some expansion, like external rotation to give you space to gain internal? So, okay, which is associated with the orientation. So the pelvis is moving as a single unit. It's not moving with relative motions. Anterior orientation is not nutation. Nutation is a sacral position relative to the ilia okay okay so you got to get for a wide isa i need a normal nutated exhaled ir representation of the pelvis first if the whole pelvis is anteriorly oriented as as a single piece oh okay so i could just i could work bilaterally on, on pulling it back okay yeah i got yeah. you yeah because I, I don't, I'm not in a, I'm not in a position and I'm not in a space where I have relative motions available to me. Mm. So I have to move the pelvis into a space where relative motions are available first. And, and you can, you know, you can hit a home run. You can, you can put, you can pick, 
spots that will move people into a place where they have relative motion and you can get your normal nutation and you can recapture your IR all at the same time, right? But if you, if you again, it's like, um, I think uh, one of the mistakes that people make is like they're, we talk about foot contacts and, and stuff like that. And then they, they get the foot contact, but they don't consider the orientation of the pelvis to start. Because you, you get what appears to be a correct foot contact, and yet you have an anteriorly oriented pelvis, you just made the anterior orientation worse. Got it. Okay. You see it? Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome.